go ahead and read God's word. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. Let's hear the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now at length, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. The main point I want to try to persuade you of this morning from this passage that I hope is helpful to you is that Christian contentment is a priority and a privilege. Christian contentment is a priority and a privilege. And so we come into this passage here from the Apostle Paul, and we're going to make three what I think are vital observations about contentment. Three vital observations that support this being a privilege and a priority. First, it's availability. That is contentment's availability. Second, it's source. And third, it's preciousness. So availability, source, and preciousness. Let's look first at its availability. I realize that you guys are in the midst of a study where you're going through some of the the basics uh, through Christianity, the blessings through the basics series, and we've come to this topic of contentment. So we are kind of parachuting into the passage, and unless you're reading Philippians in your Bible reading or have recently done a study through it, the, the context might be a little bit foggy as to what's going on. So just allow me briefly to set the context of what's happening in the letter and in this context in particular. Uh, the, the letter itself is Paul writing from prison, incidentally. And we should note that, that Paul's not a felon in the sense that he's doing egregious crimes. Uh, but he is a gospel preacher who's been imprisoned because of his ministry of the gospel and the persecution. So in other words, he's a faithful Christian who's suffering as a result of it. The second thing we should know, and we're going to look at this in a few minutes, is that this this city, this Philippian city in Macedonia, uh, is a church that actually Paul planted. And so he has a relationship with this church, and he's writing him a letter. And as it turns out, this Philippian church is, is someone who has great concern and fondness for the apostle. They love him. And they're very encouraging to him, and, and he's encouraged by them. And he takes the occasion to, to write the letter to them and, and remind them of this relationship and the bond that they have together. And it, really the, the thrust of the letter, the letter of Paul to the Philippians, is found in chapter 1, verse 27, where he's, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. If he said, what's the letter of Philippians about? That's really what it's about. How to live as a gospel citizen. And Paul is taking that point of the letter that if you're going to live as a gospel citizen, this is what it looks like. And it just opens up like an orange, just opening up on the sides. And you say, oh, it's, this is what it looks like to live as a gospel citizen. And he begins talking about putting others first. And we do that because we follow Jesus who put others first, right? And his humility and loved and served us. And so we come down to this section in chapter 4. 
And he's still talking about what does it mean to live as a gospel citizen? How do we defend and promote the gospel? How do we unite together in this fellowship, this shared relationship that we have together in Christ and the church? And he gets to chapter 4 and he's saying, hey, listen, we need to stand firm in the Lord. We need to stand firm in this gospel. And some, some of the things that he, that he begins talking about in chapter 4 is he's actually calling out a couple of ladies in the church that seem to have some disagreement that they can't get past. And it's such that everybody in the church apparently knows about it. So he just, in the middle of the letter, he just drops verse 2. I treat Iodia and Syntyche agree in the Lord. And he, he identifies them as those who have labored together with him. And he's saying, look, let's put the gospel above whatever your dispute is. And let's, let's, let's live in a manner worthy of the gospel and let's get along. And then he, he continues talking about rejoicing in the Lord in verses 4 and following, continuing to rejoice and to be governed by this peace that is in Christ. And then he tells them in verses 8 through 11, one of the, over 8 through 9, one of the key things what we need to do is set our minds really on things that are above to meditate and reflect upon Jesus. And then he starts naming off all of these characteristics of things that are to be on our mind kind of on the playlist of our mind, the things that we meditate, when our brains go in neutral, we're to think about, as Paul says, whatever's honorable, whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, is there anything worthy of praise, think about these things and keep thinking about these things. And if you say, man, if I just had a bucket, if I had a bucket that had all of these things in it that I knew exactly what it was talking about, I would think about that all the time. Well, I have one for you. It's Jesus. Because that's what it's talking about. Because who's more pure, more lovely, more honorable, more commendable, more excellent, more worthy of praise than Christ? He's saying if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, your mind is going to be continually thinking about and drawn to Jesus. And keep thinking about that. And it's in that context then that he shifts to begin talking about contentment. And you might think initially that Paul's a little bit ungrateful when, he's, when he starts out this, this section in verse 10 when he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. Not as like, oh, finally you realize that I was in need over here, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying, I'm so thankful you care. But then he's quick to say, I don't want you to feel bad that you didn't think before. It's not that I was necessarily in need, but I'm still thankful for the gift, Right? And he's, he's reminding them that he does appreciate what they have done. They've sent a financial gift to support the ministry and some means of encouragement to him. But it's out of this occasion, which is just so interesting, it's their love for him and his gracious receipt of this gift, that we get this teaching on contentment where Paul takes the opportunity, ever the disciple or ever the teacher, to say, hey, this is how we should think about such things. And he begins talking about contentment, and we see that here in verse 11. He says, I've, I've learned in whatever situation I am to, to be content. And so what does this contentment mean? What does it mean to be content? I think if, if we're to think about contentment, some of the characteristics of it, which we'll come back to, is that it's, it's an inward reality. It does have an outward expression, but it's an inward reality. And Christian contentment in particular is gracious. That is, it's a work of God's grace within us. And one of the things, one of the characteristics of contentment is it rests in God, despite the circumstances. So it's resting in God. Uh, You might be thinking that contentment sounds a little bit like joy, and in fact it does. Uh, joy, Joy is being convinced that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. It's 
Sometimes it looks like a big smile. And sometimes it looks like trust with tears. But contentment differs slightly in that it's actually an outflowing of joy. We might say it's the abiding amen of our joy. So we're saying, God is faithful. I trust his word. And as a result, I am content or I'm learning contentment. I'm pursuing contentment, which is saying I am endeavoring to rest in and receive Christ. Contentment implies that there's some type of adversity or some type of temptation or challenge that needs to be worked through. So it's as if he's saying, I am endeavoring to trust God. I'm endeavoring to treasure God. I'm clinging to him, him and his promises. The word of God and the God of the word. That is whom I'm clinging to. And what's amazing here is, is that Paul is talking about contentment. And, it, and we might just forget the reality that it's actually possible. It's available to us. Now he says, I've learned in whatever situation to, to be content. In another passage, which we'll look at in a little bit, in Hebrews 13, verse 5, the writer of Hebrew actually, Hebrews actually says, be content. So it's not only modeled by Paul, it's actually commanded by God to be content. And so right on, right on that, that's, that makes half of my point today, right? My point is that Christian contentment should be a priority and a privilege. It should be a priority because God calls us to do it. So that probably didn't take much convincing, right? As Bible-believing Christians, you say, there it is. He tells us to do it, Hebrews 13.5. But then it's also a privilege, and I, and I think we see it work itself out. But before we get that, we, we see that Paul has this key phrase, which I think is so encouraging. Did you see what it says in verse 11? Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. I have learned. This is the Apostle Paul saying, I've learned. It's, it's not something that immediately, when the Apostle Paul became a Christian, all of a sudden he was zapped with contentment. And he's like, oh, I'm just the most contented person. He, he, he wasn't. This is something he needed to learn. He, he had to go take upper-level classes in Christian contentment. He had to struggle through the agonizing prayer and adversity of contentment and, and going through it. And, and through experience, through exertion, through God's grace, through trials, through time, Paul could say, I've learned. I've learned through what I've gone through what it means to be content. It's another reminder, just as an aside, that our trials and our difficulties are not random or pointless, but they are directed and purposeful. For it's these very trials, these difficulties that Paul faced, that were his, his, his teachers, his, his trainers in the school of contentment. They were helping him to, to move along in learning. And so here's the Apostle Paul doing it. But what should we take out of this? We should take out the fact that contentment is, is available. It's not out of reach to us. It's not just if you're an apostle, a super Christian, so to speak, that can get to be content. No, this is, this is for all of us. And what God commands, he supplies the grace to do. And so just as we start on this, you might even be thinking, okay, Christian contentment is a, is a, is a priority Okay, but you don't know, I'm not that kind of person. This is very difficult for me. I have other things going on. Listen, brother, sister, 
This is the priority, and even the Apostle Paul had to learn it. So if we are Christians, disciples, followers of Jesus, then we too need to learn this. So we should be encouraged in its availability and its accessibility that we can get to it. Second, we see its source. The source of contentment. We see this also in in the passage where the Apostle Paul shows us that this contentment is not in something, but is in something else. Notice what he says in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. So he says that contentment actually is not found in the circumstance itself. Because he's, he's talking about a variety, it's kind of a shifting circumstances. So he, Paul's saying, I, I, I know when things are going really well, I'm brought high. Now that's not where contentment is. I know when I lose everything and I'm down here. That's not where contentment is. I know contentment is not in the circumstance itself. It's the up or the down. According to Paul, it comes in something outside of circumstances. Which is so interesting because this is not how we think, is it? What do we immediately think when things get hard and we're saying, oh, I don't like this. I mean, whatever the this is, fill in the blank. I'm sure you got a list, right? And it's like, if I could change this, man, I would change it. I, in fact, I want to do it. And what do we think? If we just could change the circumstances, then I would be happy, joyful, satisfied, content to get this different job or this different house or this different relationship or this different... What, fill in the blank. If I just change the circumstances, then I'd be happy. But Paul does something amazing here. Is he, he doesn't connect the happiness to the circumstances that are fluctuating and changing. He actually content, change, he attaches contentment in the midst of the changing circumstances to something else. And as Christians, we don't think like that. We, we think, I think we think like worldly people sometimes. If I just buy something new or change these circumstances and move these things around, then I'll be happy. But you know what? My experience, maybe your experience too, if you think about it, that doesn't actually work. You, you go buy the bigger house, and the bigger house has problems too. You move to the new town, the town has problems too. You get the new job, the job has problems too. There's always something. And you know what that's telling us? It's telling us that this world cannot bear the freight of your great desires. It, it just can't. It's not nothing, nothing against the world, but it's not actually meant to satisfy you. Isn't that amazing? This entire world, everything in it, everything that's created is insufficient. It cannot bear the load of your deepest desires. And you're hungry, and so am I. We are hungry to be satisfied. We're longing to be satisfied. We want to be at a place where we are at peace. And the common route we take is a shortcut to contentment and satisfaction. And you know what happens? We just keep going, grabbing the same cisterns to scoop out the water, and the bottom's rusted out, and we can't drink it. 
And it never satisfies. We see the illusion of water, the advertisement of satisfaction. We scoop the water up, and as we bring it to the mouth, the rusty bottom gives way, and it doesn't work. We might get a splash, but no satisfaction. That's because we weren't meant to be satisfied by this world. We step back, and we think about it. Where does the satisfaction come? How can we actually be satisfied? Is there a, a source that's greater well, look at Paul. He, he shows us in this passage that actually he does have an external source. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here in this passage, I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is pointing us to actually the source of his contentment is God. God himself is the one who is Paul's source of contentment. It's not in these circumstances that are fluctuating, in any created thing that is available, but God who doesn't change. And this is really a difference between internal contentment and external contentment. And what was common for us today is to try to get something external to make us internally happy, and it doesn't work. It was really common in that day with, I'm sure you've heard of Stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy intended to also pursue contentment. And there were some good things that you could identify in the Stoic philosophy, like trying to have self-control, trying to not be mastered by personal desires. And so what it intended then to do would be, and I don't think this is healthy, to master yourself in such a way that you subdue desires and you have this controlling contentment. The only problem to that is it actually doesn't work long term. Christian contentment, on the other hand, is not about controlling yourself and trusting in yourself and your own strength to do it, but trusting in God who does not change and provides the strength to do it. It's actually putting our hope and our trust in a God who is sufficient to bear the freight. And let's let's just think about for a moment who God is. I just want to remind you this morning of why God is uniquely eligible to bear the freight of your soul. And this is why contentment is a privilege. Because there's a God in heaven who actually made you, who desires to be the one to whom you put your trust and the one from whom you find your joy, satisfaction, and contentment. Think about who God is. A God himself who is eternal. Uh, The Bible tells us in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, behold, you are God. Eternality is is about the timeline. God has no beginning and no end. If you could go back to the beginning of the timeline, and you just have to keep going back outside of time, there is God, eternally existent. No beginning, no end. He's forever has been, I am. And he is forever happy in that state as an eternal God. He's also all-powerful. The Bible says in Psalm 115 that God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. His sovereignty rules over all. There is none that can, can stay His power. There are none that can overrule Him. There are none that can defeat Him. God is all-powerful. So He is this eternal God who is all-powerful. But on top of that, He's, he's unchanging. So He's not going to get... Any updates or changes, like, you, like the phones in our pockets that need to be updated regularly, or like the roads that need to be fixed after a long winter. 
Or like us that need to go into doctors to get fixed because we break down. God needs no updates. He's eternally and forever perfect. There will never be an addition to the Trinity, to the fourth member of the Trinity. Because God himself is eternally sufficient and happy in his perfection. He doesn't need anything else. So here we have this perfect God who doesn't change, who's all-powerful. Furthermore, he's independent. That is, he's set apart from creation. He doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. Every single thing that exists, exists because he willed it to exist. And everything continues to exist because he continues to will it to exist. He sustains all things. The reason why you're in your seat and not floating around because of gravity? No, because God is in charge of gravity. And he upholds and sustains all things by the power of his word. He doesn't have to take your life. He just needs to stop giving it. Every beat of your heart is divinely ordained. He is independent. He needs nothing from you, nothing from me, nothing from anybody. But we need everything from him. As Tozer said, need is a creature word. But we're talking about the creator. And he's independent of all of this. So he's independent, he's all-powerful, he's unchanging, he's eternal, he's wise, he never makes a mistake, he knows everything. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has occurred to God? He knows it all, every single thing. He even flexes on occasion and shows you like alternate endings, how that would have went. If they would have heard the message, they would have repented at the preaching Right? It's like, this is what would have happened. He knows everything. So that means in between what I know and experience and expect and what he knows and absolutely is true, that there's a massive margin and gap called what I don't know. But he knows all that. And so everything that he ordains and everything he does comes out of his wisdom and his power. So I need to trust and rest in the fact that this is who God is is all of these things, his wisdom, his independence, his power, his unchanging, his eternality, all of these things would would cause you to worship him because he's worthy of worship. But there's another attribute or aspect of God that beckons you to him to worship him because he's also a loving God. He's love. In fact, the Bible actually says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Not love is God, but God is love. God is a loving God. He's the source of love. Love is the expression of who God is. And, and that expression is primarily shown to his creation, which he's made and stamped us with his image. And most particularly in that creation is his redeeming work through Jesus Christ, where he saves us from our sins and brings us to himself. And this is who he is. So instead of a stoic thought that says look inward and control everything and just use your strength and be content and be tough about it and resist these things, God says you're weak, but you can be strong in me. The unchanging, eternal, all-wise, all-powerful, completely independent, loving God, He is a suitable source for your contentment. And just logically, you should know this. You should know that, that everything in creation, by your own experience and by the testimony of people before you, does not work. Because things change. Because things don't last. They fade away. 
I mean, eventually the, the wonderful steak is going to disappear. It's going to be gone. Uh, the, the great day at the beach, the sun's going to set. The vacation's going to end. Eventually the house is going to leak. Eventually the friends move, leave, or die. Everything in this world has an expiration date. And it can't bring that satisfaction. And in fact, one of the realities of trying to find contentment in creation is that the reality that its stuff is changing and it doesn't last. So in the midst of it, even if it's just a great day, like say you're at the beach or say you're enjoying a game or you're enjoying a beautiful sunset, relaxing, or a meal, there's that point in it when you remind yourself, this is almost over, Right? And you're like, don't think about that now. Don't think about that. Think about how great this is. It's that nagging feeling that it's just not going to deliver what you really want. So you know what that tells you? You need something and someone that doesn't change. That doesn't dissipate. That doesn't expire. And the God of the Bible is that someone. And he made you. He made you so that you wouldn't be satisfied in his creation. The creation is a gift to you to enjoy, to point you to God. He made you to have your satisfaction and your joy in him. And the very first sin in the Bible could be argued to be discontentment. Because God made the whole world. He said, don't eat from this tree. And they they went, what did they do? Go right to the tree. Eat everything else. Now we want this one. We're discontent with this. We don't trust your word. We're going to do... And they did that. And so we're reminded again and again that God is the sufficient source of our contentment. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding us and he's showing us that God is the one who is our source of contentment. So now you see contentment is a priority, but it's also a privilege. Why is it a privilege? Because we're sinners, guys. We're all sinners. We've fallen short. We, we are running after the creation, trying to find our joy, our identity, and our meaning in the things that are created. We, we sin. I mean, we may not be eating from the fruit from the forbidden tree, but we got fruit stains all over our face from eating forbidden fruit, don't we? We've sinned. And just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they had sinned against God... God pursued them. When they still had the taste of sin in their mouth, God pursued them and preached the gospel to them that they would be forgiven of their sins they believe in the ultimate Redeemer that would come through Eve. That He would crush the head of the serpent by bruising His heel. And so it is with us. We're reminded that even in the midst of our sin, God pursues us. This is the privilege of contentment. It's not an unalienable right as a human being to be content. It is a gracious privilege where God comes after you in your sin and says, listen, you've been doing it all wrong. You're drinking out of rotten, rusty cisterns. But look at my son, the fountain of everlasting life and the the water that springs up within that will satisfy your soul. Drink of this water. And like the Samaritan woman, you say to him, what? Oh, Lord, give me this water always. And you come and you believe upon Christ and you begin to taste the water from the land that isn't this world where it's corrupted, but it's the water from heaven through the Spirit. And you begin to taste the reality of sins forgiven and joy in God and the fact that this world that used to think was everything is just transitory. 
It's made by God. It will ultimately be redeemed by God. But this is just transitory. It's all about Him. You trust in Him. What does this look like? What does it look like to have this kind of contentment in God? Well, it's interesting. In the Philippians, Paul had an occasion where this church actually was planted and started to to have a chance to show his contentment in God. So if you would, turn back to Acts chapter 16, if you would. Acts 16. I just want to look at a, a passage here where you kind of see this work itself out. And in this, I want to combine a couple of things. One is that contentment is not in circumstances, and two, that contentment is in God. So Acts chapter 16, we'll start in verse 16. Here's the context of what happens before. Uh, Paul and Silas come to Philippi. They go there. There's nothing really happening from a Christian standpoint. There's a handful of women meeting by the water, praying and talking which was customary in places where there wasn't a a large religious presence. And Paul begins talking to them. Lydia becomes a Christian. Verse 14, the Lord opens her heart to receive the things spoken by Paul. She becomes a Christian, and they're going to the house of prayer. And as they're going there in verse 16, all of a sudden, surprisingly, um, this woman begins harassing them and does that for some time. We'll pick it up there and watch what ends up happening. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Christ Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. Verse 19, when the owners saw that their hopes of gain, that his financial gain, was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. So what's happening? They're just trying to go to a prayer meeting, guys. That's all that's trying to happen. And they're getting harassed by this demon-possessed girl. And Paul basically says, enough. And then people in the town respond. And the commerce of this idolatrous town gets turned on its head because of the presence of Paul preaching the gospel. And they come out and attack him. And they're beating him up. And Silas, too. And end up throwing him in jail. And they put him not just in, the, in prison, but the inner prison, like the dungeon, the worst place. Basically like solitary, so to speak, with, with the other hardened criminals. Put their feet in the stocks. They're in the, in the stocks. Basically, there you are. But that's not where the story ends. Look at verse 25. About midnight, so they've been in prison for preaching the gospel. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now that should be a surprise. I mean, just imagine if we got beat up for doing something faithful and thrown in jail. I don't know what we might be doing at midnight, right? We might be grumbling. We might be complaining. We might be feeling pity on ourselves. We might, a million things we could be doing. But as the camera kind of zooms in on Paul and Silas, we see them sitting there, likely uh, naked, full of bruises, their faces just beaten to a pulp. 
And through their swollen, blood-encrusted lips, they're praying and singing hymns. They've made it to the prayer meeting. It's in prison. So I ask you, how in the world would somebody like Paul and Silas, after the day they've had, find themselves at midnight praying and praising God, praying to and praising God? What is it? Where is their contentment? If it's in circumstances, they're insane. It's not in circumstances. It's in God. And they've learned in that moment how to be brought low, how to be brought really, really low. And in the midst of it, they have this precious strength and privilege that they are unflappably content in God, singing praises and hymns to God. And this is awesome to see. Because it reminds us that Paul's not just giving us lip service, some ivory tower. Hey, this is what you need to do. But he actually modeled it. It shows the source. And you see the, the, the privilege of contentment, not only in the grace of conversion, but to be able to be in the midst of this and still sing and praise God. Well, let's think thirdly about its preciousness. Just quickly on this, some things to think about. It's preciousness. This Christian contentment is comprehensive. Did you notice Paul's emphasis back in Philippians 4, if you go back there? He says in verse 11, just to highlight, not not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12, in any and every circumstance. You see, he's broadly speaking. He's saying, Everything, everything that I encounter, everything I, I, involves me, it, everything, I can be content. So you see, it's preciousness there. This is not just limited to things related to your religious life. This is your whole life, every single aspect of your life. Paul says, go to the school of contentment and you're going to learn what it means to be content in everything. This is the kind of power that God has But not only that, what I find just to be so encouraging is that this contentment is precious because it's untouchable. It's untouchable. These guys are in prison and they're praising God. They've they've humiliated them, brought them to shame. They physically beat them. They're feeling the pain, but they can't touch their joy, their contentment, because it's in God. It's like Paul. Paul would say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You're going to kill me? Okay, I go to heaven. You're going to keep me alive? Okay, I preach Christ. He's untouchable. You can't do something to this guy. And so it is with our contentment. If your contentment is in God, you can have whatever circumstances come at you, and you could still, because you trust in a God who doesn't change, be content. That's precious. Thirdly, it's proven. Paul's not trying out new things here. This has been the pattern for the godly throughout history. That God shows his faithfulness. Fourthly, it's precious because it's an opportunity to boast in God. Because when you choose not to grumble, not to complain, but instead to boast, to trust in Christ and be content, you're actually boasting in God. You're saying, in the moment, in the midst of that difficulty, God is enough. God is good. In the midst of the cancer. Or in the midst of the job promotion. God is good. Whether I'm high or low. He's good. Do you see how that boasts in God? That brings me to the, the fifth aspect. This is actually apologetic. It's apologetic. 
Because unbelievers begin to look at that and say, I've never seen anything like that. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when, when trials, as a pastor, I kind of get the, the look into trials into the church and, and, and see lots of them happening. And as I talk to believers and they're dealing with trials, whether it's medical trials or financial trials or work trials or just name the trials. What unbelievers who know that these people are Christians, they start acting like buzzards flying around. And they're waiting. Oh, is this the moment they're going to give it up? Because now they've entered a real mess. And let's see what happens now. Let's see what their God's like now. Let's see who he really is. It was one thing to say you believe in Jesus before, but now in the midst of this problem, what are they going to do? And when Christians not in a phony, distant, ambivalent, disconnected way actually say, it's really hard, but God is good. Unbelievers are absolutely flummoxed. Where did this come from? In fact, if you listen to people's testimonies of your friends and people you know, I bet you can think of people who say when they became a Christian, it was one of the reasons, one of the things the Lord did is they brought somebody into their life who was a Christian and they'd never seen somebody live like that before. They'd never seen somebody who in the midst of such adversity was able to be so joyful in God. Where did that come from? Was it apologetic? So you're thinking about contentment and what, how it might benefit you? Yes, indeed. And it benefits your spiritual life? Of course. But it also undergirds and supports your ministry and your witness to your unbelieving neighbors, co-workers, and people that come here on Sunday. It's apologetic. So how do you grow in it? How do you grow in contentment? Well, let's turn to Hebrews 13, just to, to close. Hebrews 13. Paul's basically saying what to do. Hebrews 13 helps us to see in a very succinct way what to do, how to do it. Verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Very inter- There's a lot of ways to grow in contentment, but, but something specific from this verse that I find really encouraging is that he's saying to, to in verse 5, don't love money, be content with what you have. But what does he mean by that, be content with what you have? I, I think he's, he's talking about the providence of God. Uh, the providence of God, just briefly, is that doctrine that everything that comes to pass, comes to pass by means of God's fatherly hand, so that everything, whether it's a snowflake from the sky, or money in your bank account, or your circumstances that you face today, or everything that's gone on, is a result of providence. And so God in his providence brings all things that come to pass to come to pass. And so what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, don't, don't love money, be content with what you have. Rest in God's providence. And one of the reasons we grumble, we grumble because we don't like our circumstances. But the writer of Hebrews here is saying, actually, be content with God's providence. Embrace his providence. Maybe we need to shrink our desires down a bit to match our circumstances. Maybe we need to just acknowledge that maybe God is bringing these trials and these situations for the purpose of making us content. And so the the writer of Hebrews says, 
Be content with what you have. Embrace God's providence. The second thing that he does is he shows us to cling to God's promises. He says, for he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So what is he doing here? But he's quoting from Joshua chapter 1. The promise of Joshua was Joshua was nervous about filling in Moses' shoes. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have because I won't leave you. Trials are hard. Friends disappoint us. We lose family members. Life is very hard. But here's the truth. God will never leave his people. He'll never leave you. He'll never leave you. And so we can trust in him. One of the things I remember reading from Tim Keller or hearing him say when he does weddings, which is something that I thought was first surprising that he would say it, and then the more I thought about it, I started saying it at weddings. He says, make sure that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of your marriage. Because more than likely, one of you will outlive the other. And if your Savior, your spouse, is in the box, dead, they'll be of no use to you. But if your Savior is Jesus Christ, then you'll be able to, even in the midst of that trial, rejoice. And so, if we are saying here, be content with what you have in the midst of this, what can make you sing in the midst of the most painful, difficult things in life? The truth that I will never leave you or forsake you. And you say, how do I know that that's true? Because there was a man one day on the cross that cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you could lay your head down the pillow of this promise. So that this could be true for you. He was forsaken that you would never be. The third aspect of this is that he begins clinging to these promises and then reciting them. He says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's confident. Not only is he comforted by the promises, but he's confident in the God of the promises. So as you come together as a, as a church family, week after week, and you hear the word of God, you're reminded to cling to his promises and to cling to him. And as Christ is preached, you're reminded again of the preciousness and the privilege of knowing Christ. And as you get up from your seat, you walk forward and you take the Lord's Supper, and you're reminded that the body was broken, the blood was spilled for you. And that this meal is a rehearsal dinner for the marriage supper of the Lamb where we are going one day to be home. So we're passing through on our way to glory where we will feast and enjoy the eternal Sabbath day with all of God's people throughout history. And so brothers and sisters, as you think about Christian contentment, I want you to see that it is a priority. God commands it. But it is a privilege and if, you, if you've not yet come to Christ to enjoy the privilege and these promises seem foreign to you, but you're maybe you know, coming to church and saying these are strangely attractive promises, I want you to know that you don't have to do anything to make yourself eligible for Christianity. That's actually a, a, a myth that you need to clean up and come to Christ. He's actually the one who cleans us up. It's like washing your car before going to the car wash. Go see the professional. Jesus cleanses our souls. 
So come to Him and ask His forgiveness. Believe upon Him. Rest in Christ and receive His benefits. And these promises are yours. He'll work this in you. If you're here today and you're feeling distant from God and feeling like you haven't been very content and you're wondering, as a, as a Christian who's made a profession of faith, what is the path back? The path back is honesty. It's saying, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for trusting in created things. You're gracious and forgiving and I've wasted time. I'm wasting no more. Let me, let me again be reconciled to you through this. Lord, forgive me. You're faithful and just to forgive me of sins. You say, if anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let Christ plead my case. Lord, forgive me. And if you're here and you're saying, yeah, I'm following Jesus, what do I do with this? This isn't correcting me. This is instructing you to continue on in this way. So continue, brothers and sisters, in the privilege and the priority of Christian contentment, that the Lord would be glorified and that your joy would be made full. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you today for the matchless name of Jesus in whom we trust and have set our hope. I pray for my brothers and sisters that as we walk on this road, on our way to that eternal day, that celestial city, that we would find our hearts encouraged to trust in the one who strengthens us that we may do all things, whether we're high or low, in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.